Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 14. Psalm 14, probably familiar, at least one verse ought to be familiar to us. Now, I, I do not recall a time in my life when I believed that there was no God. Being raised in a Presbyterian church in the north, even though it was northern Presbyterian, uh, being raised there, being brought up there, just, just like uh, Isaac, being baptized there, uh, confirmed in that church, joined, became an elder, a, a deacon, an elder. Uh, actually, I was ordained at that, or yeah, I was ordained at that church. Now, I didn't become a Christian until I was 15, but I always knew that there was God. I just didn't understand the, um, the saving aspect of Jesus Christ and that, that, that relationship that he calls us to. So I don't know what it's like to come to a passage like this and go and say, there's no God. I mean, I've been a fool in other ways. I don't want you to think that I'm not a fool, but not a fool in the way that Psalm 14 talks about. A fool in the sense that the fool says there is no God. In fact, it's worse. He says in his heart that there's no God. And we'll see some of the consequences that come from that. So if you're able, would you stand with me this morning? And even though we will deal mostly with verse 1 and 2, I will read all of Psalm 14 for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray that your hand would come upon us. Hand to open our eyes and open our hearts Lord, for only you can do that and, and, and give us the insight into your word so that, Lord, we are prepared to share this with those who are foolish enough to say that you do not exist. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It is for the choir director. This is a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's kind of an all-encompassing statement there. Okay, It doesn't leave anybody out there. So do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread and, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now you want to keep that open. In fact, put your finger there. And flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, because that's where we're going to go next. Um, the, to get an idea, there are several places that we're going to have to look at today to get some understanding of, of what this means. Now, Scripture begins, it, it does not begin with the idea that, that God must be proven, that His existence must somehow, we must be convicted of His existence. It begins with a statement, in the beginning... God. Okay? It doesn't say, now let me wrestle with your intellect. It doesn't say, uh, let me give you the proofs of it. It simply states the fact that in the beginning, God. So the concept that is put forth to us in this, this psalm here, Psalm 14, is the fool says in his heart, 
that there is no God. And now the fool refers to the opposite of the wise as it's laid out for us in Scripture, and that is wise according to God's word. The fool might be highly intelligent in this world uh, by the world's standards, um, but is oblivious to the standards of the Lord, oblivious to his calling, the Lord's calling in his life. Now there's a theologian named Van Til, and he put it this way. It's, it's great and very simple. A non-Christian is like a child sitting on her father's lap, slapping his face. She could not slap him unless he allowed her to do so. Just think about that for a moment. We've all been there, all have had our kids, and they've gone, I, I, when I had a beard, they would pull my beard. Okay, Now that's not very pleasant, but it only happens if I let them pull my beard. Similarly, a non-Christian cannot carry out his rebellion against God unless God makes that rebellion possible. Now think of it this way, on a much smaller scale than this, but still real and, and, and very personal in our hearts. It would be something like those in this country who feel it necessary to go out and to burn or to walk on the flag. And, and they don't, for some reason, I don't think they, they get it, that, that that is a symbol of the rights that allow them to do that. So they are in, attempt, in, a, in a real sense desecrating the image or the symbol of what, allow, what gives them the rights to desecrate it. Okay. Now how about this? Um, now... Through my high school and college years, I had a lot of Russian. So I had a lot of Russian language, a lot of Russian history. Uh, I went there on several occasions, and this was when it was still, you know, the USSR. And, and as I grew in my knowledge of this, I, I was always shocked at any um, academic or any journalist who would write favorably about communism or, or think that we ought to uh, incorporate some of those tenets into our system. And I always wondered, didn't they understand that the freedoms that allowed them to write those things were going to be the first things that were taken away? The freedom of expression, the freedom to voice your opinion, contrary to what the government says. That's part and parcel of communism. So here in 14, you have the fool, which would encompass many people, stay in Ephesians, we're coming right there, whose very existence is sustained by the God he does not believe in. So that's what we have here. So what is the problem of the fool? That's what takes us to Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses here. This helps us understand the problem that the fool faces. And, and frankly, the problem that everybody faces who's not a believer. Verse 1, "...and you were dead in your trespasses and sins." in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Paul is writing to believers here. Remember he says, as you formerly walked. So to say that outside of Christ you were simply dead in your sin. Okay? And, and dead people do what for you? No, they don't do anything. They don't help you. They don't talk to you. Um, they, uh, they just don't do anything. And that's the illustration here. If you're spiritually dead, you, you really can't do anything to get you spiritually alive unless the Lord comes and changes you. So the fool is dead in his sin. Those who are dead will not seek God. Romans chapter 8 also says... 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law because it is hostile. It is set against God. So let's define the fool for us in our modern world. The atheist is the fool, for he says in his heart that there is no God. Now, remember, um, this is just your quick Greek lesson. When you add an A on the front of a Greek word, it negates the word. So an atheist, if you have a theist, you believe in God. If you're an atheist, you don't believe in God. If you're a, uh, the word to know in Greek is gnosis. So if you, have, if you are Gnostic, you know. If you are agnostic, you don't know. Okay? So we have the atheist who is in full denial of God's existence. So let's look at some of those moral and ethical issues that come with that denial of his existence. Now, ever since Aristotle, now some of you are going, oh, Aristotle, I love, you know, I love philosophy. Now others, you, others are going, gosh, Aristotle, who reads him anymore? Uh, well, every now and then, we've known that there are two kinds, from, from his days, we know that there are two kinds of rational arguments. One is demonstration, which is used in the scientific world. You're going to demonstrate a reality. And then the other is reasonable judgment that you are going to conclude from and through reasonable judgment that this would be true. So Aristotle writes, it is equally foolish to accept probable reasoning from a mathematician. Now some of you are mathematicians and you know that, you know, two and two is four. Yeah. No matter what Common Core might say, or, uh, or the new math. It was always the new math when I was growing up, okay? Um, so that there are concrete things, but it is folly to accept probable reasoning. I think it's four. Let's check it out and see. Maybe if you don't feel like it's four, maybe we can adjust it. No, that's foolishness, okay? It is equally foolish to accept probable reasoning from a mathematician and to demand scientific proof from a rhetorician, Okay? Prove to me that God exists. I want concrete proof. Demonstrate to me that. Do you really? You know, that, that's, a rhetorician is somebody who talks and who argues logically. That is reasonable judgment that you come to the conclusion that God exists. Now, we're going to find out a little bit more about that in just a moment. So we have two kinds of rational thinking, not just one. Science might provide knowledge about reality, but it doesn't provide everything about reality. So today the creed of, of atheism is that religion is, is outmoded, it's suitable only for the uneducated, the weak-minded, the foolish, the fanatical, the naive, and, and really this all comes from a philosophy that came out from a guy named Antony Flew. He put forth years ago the presumption of atheism, the presumption of atheism. Now for much of his career, Flew was known as a strong advocate of atheism, and he said, one should presuppose atheism until empirical evidence of a God surfaces. So this became the de facto position of atheism. Now, Flew was a signer of the Humanist Manifesto, and it's interesting to know, 2003, 2004, he came to the conclusion that God exists. He said, I have to go where the evidence leads me. It doesn't, in, in his writings, it doesn't say that he became a Christian, and, and, and understood the things of Jesus Christ, he believed that God exists. So everything that he argued all his life, he threw out there at the end and said, no, the evidence 
points me to the existence of God. So atheism, the the fool that we're talking about today, was really largely a reaction to those who put forth the concept that God is all-powerful and also when you tie that into the existence of evil. When you put those two things together, people really rebelled against that. Um, And atheists and even some believers don't like what appears to be that contradiction, that that a good God who's in control of everything and here is evil, how how do those two things exist in the same world? So even though they don't have an unchangeable place from which to base their absolutes, most atheists in our society continue to defend the meaning and purpose of life, the validity of uh, objective morality, and the assurance that humanity is marching on towards progress and making progress, going towards something better. And most will say, if we could just get those stupid people and their religion out of the way, we'd make a lot faster progress. Now, the best guy who battles intellectually with the atheists today is really Ravi Zacharias. It's my opinion, but Ravi is so bright and so sharp. Um, and I've got some things that he has, he has said here. He said, first, we need to clarify that atheism is not a worldview. It is not a worldview. There are no tenets, no dogma, no edicts. It is simply a label we use to identify a position on a single question. Do you believe a God exists? Yes or no? But it is a position that leads to definite moral political, ethical actions that are contrary often to the things that Christians would believe. So many times, this is Zacharias, many times as Christian theists, we find ourselves on the defensive against the critiques and questions of atheists. So he gives us five questions. He gives us a lot more. I just picked out five. He gives us five things that we should challenge atheists with. Now remember, the atheist is the fool here in Psalm 14. Number one. If there is no God, the big questions remain unanswered. If there is no God, the big questions remain unanswered. Where did everything come from? And why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there conscience, intelligent life on this planet? Okay, Is there meaning to this life that that we have here? Does human history lead anywhere or is it all in vain since we're just going to end up in the grave and turn back to dirt? How do you come to an understanding of good and evil, right and wrong, without this transcendent being in existence? If these concepts are merely social constructions or human opinions, where do we look to determine what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong? The big questions remain unanswered. That's number one. Number two, if we reject the existence of God, we are left with, and this is one of Zacharias's favorite terms, a crisis of meaning, a crisis of of meaning. Now you can go to atheists like uh, John Paul Sartre or Nietzsche and recognize the, that in the absence of God in their belief, there is no transcendent meaning beyond, beyond me. Okay, that's what it comes down to. If there's no God, there's me. And there's what I want and I make meaning, I define meaning, I define right and wrong only for myself. So number three, If people don't believe in God, the historical results are horrific, are horrific. Yes, before you go, I know Christians have not been good since Christ came. We've had our moments. But compared to those who say there is no God, we are amateurs, okay? 
I'll just give you four names. That's all you need to know. Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot. Okay? How many millions did they kill? I think communism killed over 100 million in the 20th century. 100 million. These regimes have been responsible for the countless millions who have lost their lives, more influenced by Nietzsche, Nietzsche, than by the gospel of Christ. Number four, if there is no God, the problems of evil and suffering cannot be solved. Why do we suffer? Why is there evil? Okay, try to make sense out of that without a transcendence in our world, without a transcendent being who controls and watches over us. There's no hope, there's no redemption, there's no meaning for our suffering. If there's no God to blame now, neither is there a God to reach out to for strength, for meaning, for comfort. And number five, if there's no God, we lose the very standard by which we critique religions and religious people. Whose opinion matters if there's no God? Why should my opinion be any more significant than your opinion on what is right and what is wrong? In the long run, human tastes and opinions, well, they kind of come and go. If we give them more weight now, what's going to happen in 10 years when the tide changes and we have to change our opinion? Who's to say that lying and cheating and adultery or, or to pick any bad thing is wrong if there's not a transcendence up there to tell us that it's wrong? Human cultures at various times have... Legally or socially disapproved of everything from believing in God to believing in a world that revolves around the sun, from slavery to interracial marriage, from polygamy to monogamy, human tastes, opinions, law, and cultures are hardly dependable arbiters of truth. We're fickle. That's what it is. We're fickle. Okay? So that's, that's Zacharias, and you can find that stuff online. He's got... Uh, Rabbi RZI Ministries, I think, if you want to look up more of what he has to say. So back to the full in um, Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart. Now the atheist would not deny God if he were not a fool by nature. This is Spurgeon, a fool by nature. And having denied God, he is a fool in practice. So his heart, as we looked at before, is darkened, is, is sinful, is dead. So that is his nature. So in practice, he simply lives out his nature. I deny God because it's my nature. I deny God in how I live. It's simply that simple. To say there is no God, though, is, as Spurgeon says, to belie the plainest evidence, which is obstinacy, to oppose the common consent of mankind, which is stupidity, and to stifle conscience, which is madness. And this is, again, he makes it, Spurgeon makes it very simple, like Van Til did earlier. The fool who denies God does not stop the, the judgment of God that will come upon him, just in the same way that denying the existence of fire does not prevent its burning a man who is in it. I'm just not going to say, I'm not, that fire doesn't exist. How are your feet? They're really hot, but that fire does not exist. You smell that? It smells like... Is it, is it steak that's cooking? No, it's me. This, but there's no fire. That's just what he's saying. When the fool is said in his heart that there is no God, it infers that there's no, not just that there's no God, but there's no force, there's no entity, um, 
uh, there's no outside influence that has influence in man's life. We are all that there is. Now, it's interesting. Yeah, we don't see this in the English here, but, but in the Hebrew, he doesn't use the word Jehovah or Yahweh for the word God here. He uses the word Elohim. Now, why is that significant? Well, by using the word Elohim, he means the fool is attacking the existence of the covenantal, personal, ruling, and governing presence of God. I mean, it's not, he's simply not ignoring and, and discounting the existence. He's discounting that God would actually care about me and be involved in my life. He said, that is an impossibility. How, again, Spurgeon, how horrible the insanity which leads a man who owes all he is to God to cry out, there is no God. I owe everything I am to him, but I'm going to deny he exists. How is it that man can deny God? There's an answer. Turn to Romans 1, please. Paul is going to lay out for us very clearly and plainly how it is that man can deny the existence of God. Romans chapter 1, we'll go from verse 18 to 21, just a couple verses for it. Paul really sums it up for us plainly and clearly here in these couple of verses. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. The issue here is idolatry. Okay, that's the backdrop for all of what Paul is saying here. And in idolatry, humans suppress the truth and exchange the glory of our Heavenly Father and worship for Him for worship of other humans, for images of animals, for insects. Uh, take, take your pick, anything that we raise above our Heavenly Father. And when we do this, this leads to the moral decline and misery, as it says, God's wrath is upon them. And everyone has a conscience here, and that conscience, in a sense, condemns them for their idolatry, for not worshiping God, but worshiping something else. So in some sense, everybody knows God. And in, in another sense, only the, the ones who the Lord opens their eyes to actually know God. Everybody can look in the world because God has placed it upon their hearts that He exists, they're without excuse. That's what it says. They are without excuse. Now, Paul is writing to, to pagans here, to non-believers, in, in this little portion here as he's referring to them. Now, it's not just those who are the fools who deny God, but it's those who want to worship something, but it is not the God of the Bible. Not the God of the Bible. 
They want to be religious. They want to have spirituality. They just don't want to practice it in Christianity. Very common in our world today that they just don't want to practice their spirituality here in the confines of Christianity. They want to find their own. They want to have the smorgasbord, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. This is what I like. This is what, what, what I think God would be. Ooh, dangerous terms. Dangerous. So Paul says to them, you're not ignorant. You can't claim ignorance when it comes to the existence of God. You can't go, I just don't know. I just didn't know he exists. You, you know God. That's what it's saying here. That you know God. God has not only displayed the knowledge of himself in creation, but God has revealed himself to everybody, and you possess that knowledge that he exists. The problem for the non-believing world is that they suppress that knowledge. They declare that the evidence points to other things. No, no, the evidence points to my own wisdom. Ah. Paul is saying how non-believers suppress the truth in their hearts in a way that they fail to glorify God. They fail to thank Him. Look at the beginning of verse 21. For even though they knew God, even though they knew God, they did not what? Honor Him as God. This goes back and kind of fills in Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth. So they know he exists. They suppress that knowledge. They suppress the fact that he's, he, he is alive. Now, this, is, this might be the most important thing that you'll hear today. The truth is suppressed by unrighteousness. So in the full in the atheist, in the non-believer, it is not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem. It is not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem in their hearts. Now, you might go to a, a, an atheist, a non-believer, and they want to argue the facts, and they want to argue the existence of God. And they're not arguing because they don't have enough knowledge about God. They're arguing because their hearts are not right, and their hearts have to be changed before their minds are going to be changed. Two things. Verse 21 tells us, lays out for us, that this is not a cognitive, but it's a moral rebellion against God. First, they did not honor God or they did not give thanks to God. That is the fundamental purpose for which we were created, to give glory and honor to our Heavenly Father. They failed to do this. And secondly, they suppress the truth. How do they suppress the truth? They see God's creation. They see God's glory. It is written on their heart and they simply deny it or they put it forth and it came in other ways. The universe which was not, they, they say, they, they knew the world hasn't always existed, that it was been brought into being by something else, but they deny that fact. So despite the fact that he's eternal, and that's clear, despite the fact of his power and his wisdom and his goodness that is displayed in creation, they, they don't care. They're not going to worship him. Why should I worship something I can't see when I can worship me? When I can worship me. Let's go to these last three here. In verse 21, 
They became futile in their speculations. They became futile in their speculations. This is how they suppress the truth. Once their knowledge of God is divorced from thanksgiving for God, they become futile in their speculations. Like I said earlier, I like to think of God as, well, how, do you, how does God want you to think about him? It's laid out here for us in his word. Not whatever you want him to be. Okay, In the beginning, God created uh, man, and now we've returned the favor. We create God in our image. That's a very dangerous thing. If you reject the true knowledge of God, you'll come up with all manner of silly things that you want to worship. Silly, crazy ideas. Remember, it's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. It's not that men don't know enough. Their hearts simply are wrong. I mean, what crazy ideas have people come up with? Smart people have come up with. Scientology, Feng Shui. There are people who put bathrooms only in certain parts of their house because they don't want to disrupt the energy flow in their house. I mean, I put them where I need them, right? That's, but that's crazy things that people come up with. Next, number two, their foolish hearts are darkened. Now, the heart stands for the entire inner life. The heart's the center of the inner life. It's from, a, from there that the person's direction is, is determined. The whole course is, is shaped by, by our, our hearts, and, and that's, that's the, the reference here. And Paul is saying the very core of our being, of, of their being, they become impervious to the truth. The truth simply cannot penetrate it for some reason, because the more they move to the darkness, the more they love the darkness. John is very clear. Men love the darkness. They hate the light. And then finally, number three, they claim to be wise, and yet they become fools. And here he tells us that idolatry is the inevitable consequence of the suppression of the truth. When you suppress the truth, you will worship something else, and it will be something that you like, and it will not be God. God has made us. For his purposes, made us for his glory, made us to worship him. And if we don't want the God who is, we will invent a God that we want, and sooner or later that God will look very much like us. And we become what? The fool. The fool. So I think one of the most important things we can take away from this is if you've ever been intimidated by those who do not believe in God, those whose I can't argue with him. He's got too big of a brain. It doesn't really matter. It's not an intellectual problem. It's not a problem that you have to beat that person's intellect so that they will believe. It is a moral problem of the heart. Their eyes need to be open to the truth of Jesus Christ. For in him only is salvation. In him they will understand the existence of our Heavenly Father. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room to share the gospel or to win somebody with Christ. You just have to be armed with the right thing right here. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is the offensive weapon that we have to battle the fool, to battle the atheist, to battle the things of the world that stand against you, to the, the men and women who have created their own God and who want to worship that and who, whose hearts are becoming harder and harder. It is the gospel that will melt that heart. It is the speaking 
the words of truth from the word of God. It is living out those things before them. That will change their hearts. Their intellects, Lord, those things will will change. We're going to pray for their hearts. We're going to pray that the moral and ethical issues that that bind them to to idolatry, that, that have such a hold upon them, Lord, that you would melt them away as the gospel penetrates that. Use us, Lord, as your instruments to deliver the message of truth that we might do so in a way that is humble, that is compassionate, but yet it is unyielding to the things of the world. For we stand on the righteousness of Christ as he has gone before us. And we are to deliver that message to a world, frankly, Lord, that is burning and ignores the fire. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.